On this episode of the podcast, Jared nearly gets pinched by the IRS. I contemplate why no one is smiling at me. We discuss listeners' favorite part of the show, the inevitable 30 minutes of awkward silence. I'm Jared Nichols. I'm Paul Tulin. And this is the best pandemic ever. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another fantastic episode. I was trying to think of the word there for a second of the best pandemic ever. I hope that you are enjoying all of these episodes as much as our guest today has been enjoying and immersing himself in the world of the best pandemic ever. His name is Dylan Costa, and that's about all I know about him. I know he's sitting in a van right now, and there's a whole story behind that, but this is somebody that Paul knows quite well, and uh, I'm trusting Paul's judgment that Dylan's going to really rock out here on this on this interview and, uh, well, conversations, not an interview, conversation. Um, but if he doesn't, that's Paul's fault. And so I just want to make sure that that is clear up front. So no. the, best, the best part of today... Wait, two welcome to the show, Dylan. I'm just messing. <laughs> two, two great things happening today. One was that earlier in the day, Jared called me, flushed it and upset because <laughs> he was dealing with some IRS garbage and his CPA was pissing him off. And he's like, I don't think I'm going to be able to make it this afternoon. And I'm like, great. I can just talk mad shit about about Jared all day. That'd be perfect. Then it'd just be me and Dylan. But then he ended up and showed up anyway. So yeah. be that as it may. It's the best pandemic ever. Is, it is a conversation. And, you know, famous people have never had a corner on, uh, you know, never had the market cornered on interesting and fascinating stories or being good conversationalists. Um, Dylan and I, we don't go as far back as Dylan and my wife do. They're old friends. So I was introduced to Dylan, well, now it has to be 20 years ago. Jesus Christ, that's a long time. Yes, yeah, so we have known each other a long time. Um, but we have this history of, for, for some unknown reason, most of our conversations occur at a beach. Um, and they're always awesome to the point where I, I kind of I pine for his presence when I'm at the beach and he's not there. Because the conversations are always just funny and great and smart and interesting. And uh, he's got an amazing story. That you know, he we talked about going out in a van, and uh, and then of course I talked to Dylan because he's got a van story. He conceived the idea of a vandemic episode, and so that's why we've invited him. He's going to tell us that story. So <laughs> welcome. I am I am happy, even though we're not yeah. on the beach. Welcome, Dylan. Yes, thanks, Paul. Good to meet you, Jared. Just for the listeners, me and Jared haven't really spoken more than three or four sentences to each other. So he's gonna he's not just acting interested. He's, it's uh, true. I'm genuinely interested. All, he's all new. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So this sort of started with uh, Paul reaching out, asking me a couple of questions about my van that I'm sort of in the midst of converting to an RV. And uh, I threw out the uh, the concept of the pandemic and uh, me and my wife's experience in this uh, in this van for the past. Uh, we've had it since the spring of 2019. It's uh, seen most of its use during uh, the best pandemic ever, uh, and it certainly um, made the pandemic uh, bearable in in our household. Um, and uh, yeah, do you guys want me to get into the uh, well the tell, story? What, 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 yeah, what do a little bit. But do? first, tell tell why I think maybe explain why the pandemic would be considered unusually unbearable in your house because of. Alicia's job. Yep. So uh, my wife, uh, Alicia, is one of the uh, medical directors in the uh, Rhode Island Department of Health. Um, So I believe starting on maybe March 
15th, something like that, when the sort of pandemic came to be. Um, she obviously she was aware of the goings on before then. But uh, when the shutdown started happening, which I think that was the week of the of our March 15th, I'm pretty sure she worked something like 72 days in a row starting at that in mid-March. Um, so I can tell you uh, for certain it, in the public health community, it's not been the best pandemic ever. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really glad you bring that up. Yeah. Because this is something that Paul and I would always just call ourselves on. We say, look, we, we're not here making fun of. I mean, we can only speak about our experiences. We've heard, we know that things are rough. And so anytime we get to talk to somebody who's like, look, this is, I have friends in the health community as well. And they're telling me the same thing. Like, this is not this sucks. And so, yeah, yeah, this, this is really important. Yep. So it, um, you know, in, in, uh, she's a, a pediatrician by training, um, isn't working clinically at the moment. So I would say it's more of a, uh, a public health policy, administrative state government, federal government, you know, all the things that you guys have some familiarity with how, um, amazingly efficient and smart. Everything is run at all times. hundred <laughs> uh, percent. Yeah. So, uh, so all that, um, you know, really made our household. And, and, and when I say 72 days in a row, I, I, I also don't mean like eight hour days, like, Oh, it's five o'clock. I'll shut the computer off. We're talking minimum 12 hour days going into 14, 15, just really brutal. Um, so, the, the van, if I can get into that a little bit, was uh, something that we had was in the back of our minds. We do uh, a lot of hiking, uh, primarily in New England, um, but we, we've been around the world and around the country on, on various uh, adventures. Um, we were going to become empty nesters in uh, uh, 2019. Uh, we have two kids. The younger, my younger son, Patrick, was graduating from high school, heading out to Seattle and the University of Washington. Um, so, you know, that opens up some, uh, you know, possibilities. And we both had kind of had this idea of, uh, you know, an adventure, an adventure ride. And, you know, you watch YouTube videos and Facebook groups. So I can talk a bit about all that world, too. I, I, I'm in the, the social media side of all of, of this, the good and the bad of that. Um, but uh, so we ended up uh, buying a van. It's a, a 2017 Dodge ProMaster, 159-inch wheelbase high top. Ooh. Uh, <laughs> uh, we ended up buying that in May or June of 2019. Uh, you know, as a cargo van. These basically are Amazon vans. If, if for those who are not in the van culture, no, that... you know the difference between transits and sprinters and. The ProMasters, at least around here, are, are Amazon. Um, mine was not an ex-Amazon vehicle, um, but it was used. Uh, I knew it would be a, a, a big project. I've done um, virtually all the work in my own home forever. I'm, you know, I'm a do-it-yourselfer. I've worked professionally as a carpenter in the, in the film and uh, theater world. Um, so I knew it was going to be a do-it-yourself project, and it was going to be big. Um, what I was only somewhat prepared for was the black hole that is, um, van building on the internet. Um, unlike a home, 
where there's like a building code and kind of a right way, you know, the studs are 16 inch centers and you've got a vapor barrier and maybe you go R7 or R9 with your insulation. Like it's the wild west on the internet for van building. As soon as you find somebody that tells you uh, it's absolutely critical to have that vapor barrier in your van. You're going to find somebody else that says you're insane. You'll never maintain it. It's a waste of time and you're going to trap the moisture and it's going to rot and rust and you're, you know, it's all going to go horribly bad. Um, so that's another, you know, the, the social media side of this is a, is a story unto itself, but we got the van, we started working on it. Um, it was usable, uh, well, we used it right away. We literally threw a mattress on the floor and the two days after we bought it, we went camping. Um, the state it was in come the pandemic was um, quite a bit further along than that. It was insulated, it had a raised bed, it had a little bit of temporary cabinetry. Um, the pandemic gave me a opportunity uh, to to do more work on it at work. I work at the Rhode Island School of Design, which is a big art school in Providence. Oh, nice. um, um, a technician and engineer there. And so my friends and coworkers are also the technicians who run things like CNC machines and lathes and wood shops and metal shops. So the pandemic at the beginning wasn't the worst thing for the progress of my van building. The shop <laughs> Would you say it was the best thing though <laughs> would you <laughs> for it us was the best yes ever. yes uh, I, I was going to point out the fact <laughs> that while leash suffered immeasurably you, you know you were you were whistling along to the cnc shop and just having a grand old time i know i, I think that bears mentioning no and i was I'm, and i'm sitting here waiting i'm like there, at some point we're gonna see how this like alleviates her problems and pain, but I have yet to hear that. This sounds more like she was working 72 hour days. It was terrible for me or 72 days in a row, 15 hour days. I had to do something for myself. (laughs) So, so I buckled down. There we go. (laughs) Change the narrative. Here we go. (laughs) And put, uh, put a ceiling in the van. Anyway, that's the pride and joy, which you guys can see and our listeners can't, but it's a nice hard maple ceiling. Um, But uh, it did become apparent um, that we were going to need an escape hatch on this fabulous pandemic. And um, we started to use the van a little bit. Again, I mean, she was unable to even take a day off until mid to late June, I think. So then we started to um, head to New Hampshire. and uh, ultimately planned, I mean, it, basically she had to put her foot down at work and say like, I, I gotta take a week off in August. Like she was really, really on the edge of breaking. Um, everybody is, you know, she, at work, it's, it's crazy. Um, so there was a nine or 10 day trip planned in August, which kind of put uh, a hard time frame on when this thing needed to be kind of fully operational. Uh, some type of shower, some type of sink, a refrigerator, some cabinets. The bed had been kind of up and running all along. Um, and uh, we did that. We did a big trip uh, to Maine um, in August. And, you know, we've had to navigate some of the travel restrictions around New England. And Maine had a, you had to get tested what? within September. 
72 hours of arriving or quarantine. And so we got tested and there was something about it. I don't remember the exact days. Like we got tested on a Saturday or Sunday, but that's really only, we were supposed to arrive by like Wednesday in Maine to make it completely legit, but we were going to arrive on like Thursday night. So I'm like, and I had, again, a little social media, I had heard in the hiking community that the state police had actually questioned some people about where they had been and where they had come from. So we snuck into Maine in the dead of night and, and back roads in this van. <laughs> and, oh, man. Uh, I thought you were so, about to say it was on a hiking trail. So, so we got out of everything, went on the hiking trails and snuck in that way. Yeah. We, uh, no, no, we drove and, and, and I had been, um, little sort of subculture thing of the van is, um, uh, it's, it's called boondocking, right? So that's where you're going to sleep in your van, um, somewhere, hopefully free everywhere from a Walmart parking lot to a trailhead to somebody's farm, whatever. So I'm doing research because it's, it's like a, we're heading to Baxter state park, which is almost seven hours from, from where we are in Rhode Island. And uh, we're is leaving. That the northern, is that the northern northern terminus of the AT? Yes. Yeah. Yep. That's what I thought. Oh, okay. So that's where we, we were going up there yeah. to hike Katahdin and a bunch of other uh, uh, peaks up there. Um, so I'm looking at these, you know, I boondock and these various sites. I'm like, I'm going to find a really cool place three, four hours in because we're not going to drive the whole seven hours in the dead of night, back roads, crossing the border into Maine semi-legitimately. <laughs> Um, so I'm like, I think I found this cool parking lot and I got the GPS coordinates and we're driving these back roads. It's like 1 a.m. when we finally roll in there and the van's been packed. And uh, I'm like, yeah, we're out there. We're in Maine. We're starting our boondocking trip. I wake up the next morning. We are in the parking lot of the biggest L.L. Bean in America. <laughs> There's like seven other RVs. There's like families walking by in flip flops heading up to the LL Bean outlet and the, uh, oh. the Corning outlet to get some dishes. See, they wanted to be there. You thought you were somewhere else. Is that what I'm gathering? Oh. I just, you no, know, I didn't ga- I gather that it was uh, a parking lot to an outlet mall. I see. You know, I missed that <laughs> in the in the description, but it was free and it worked. Uh, but uh, after that, we headed up towards Baxter State Park, and it all got much, uh, much more remote for the week after that. Um, did, did you experience anything? Because what I what I learned was when I was going up to see um, Carl and Carol, uh, I'm saying that because Dylan knows that that's my in-laws. When I was heading up to see when we were going up, you know, there was all this kind of same same sort of stuff. Uh, you know, the border, you have to get, you know, they're going to check you, they're going to, they're going to record you, all this kind of stuff. And we didn't, we didn't experience any of that. It was none of that. It was very, it was very benign. It was, you know, we got to the hotel, they asked us for information for contact tracing reasons. If somebody got sick, they'd be able, it was all, you know, I mean, it was all very manageable. What did you, what did you ultimately experience that first trip in Maine? Anything? Uh, yep. At the gate at Baxter State Park, um, they did ask us for, there was a form that we had downloaded from like the state of Maine website and it had the dates that we had been tested or something and our address and our phone number. And, um, then they took the form and I actually had a bit of a moment of panic because I'm like, we, we hadn't gotten a campsite in the park. So we were going to be coming and going to the park each day. And I'm like, 
boy, you're going to keep that form? Because I'm coming back tomorrow. <laughs> and, uh, they, but after that, they were just like, have you given us a form yet? And I said, yeah. Like, okay, head on in. Yeah. So like, it, it was, you know, nominally uh, 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 strict. I will say right after we left, though, and I, I don't imagine this news made it all the way to North Carolina, there was a big outbreak at a wedding in Millinocket, and Millinocket is like the town that um, Baxter State Park, um, that you access Baxter State Park from. So like literally right after we left, they people had like a wedding with like 75 people, no distancing, and like something like 62 out of the 75 people ended Jeez. up testing positive. Um, so, uh, but we have, we've traveled since then extensively back into Maine, New Hampshire and Vermont. And there's definitely, this would be my field report, Paul. Yeah. <laughs> um, definitely a different vibe across the three states. Um, Vermont, I think has the lowest um, testing positive rate in the country, or if not the lowest, very close. And they are very, um, I would say the citizenry is very conscientious. I mean, we're like off the grid on a hiking trail, five miles up. And as you approach somebody, they either have their mask on or they, they pull it up. They have it around their neck and they pull it up. So, so let me ask you, let me ask you a question. Cause that's something I wanted to, I wanted to bring up something I experienced in Washington this past week. I went to see my friend. We, we were hiking in the Cascades. We hiked up to a place called um, Lake Colchuk near Leavenworth. So if you go see Patrick, you, you got to go there. You would love it. You guys would absolutely love it. Um, but I saw we had a mix of people passing us. Um, some would bring their mask up and others would not. And I found I assumed that in that environment that people were bringing their mask up as a demonstration of just common courtesy. It, it wasn't that they really believed that the virus would spread in that brief, you know, interaction where you had, I mean, we, you know, we, one of us would step off the trail and let the other one pass. Right. That, that was my assumption. But if that were accurate, then I would expect an engagement, a person to person engagement. Cause if you're extending a courtesy to me, then I would expect you to be able to, um, uh, extend not only that kind of physical manifestation of courtesy, but some kind of verbal manifestation of courtesy to say, hey, how you doing? Good to see you. Thank you, whatever. And it, and it wasn't that. So what I saw was people would put their mask on and kind of shy away from us, which caused me to think that, again, that they were making that decision not based out of necessarily just courtesy, but somewhat out of fear. And that, and that concerned me because, you know, I, we talk about it all the time. Of course, masks make sense. We all know the efficacy. It's just common sense, right? A virus spreads less when you cover your mouth. Your grandmother could have told you that. Um, but seeing people motivated by fear, I thought was a little troubling and a thing that I, and something that I kind of I wanted to think about it, talk about. Well, what was your experience? How did, what was your sense? We've definitely seen, and I mean, we've hiked uh, at least two days every weekend, probably now for eight, eight weeks yeah. across Vermont, New Hampshire and, uh, and Maine. Um, and I've seen it all. So definitely people, like you said, like they're both putting the mask on turning away and not engaging socially 
um, I ended up having a great conversation with a guy um, in uh, Maine last weekend and uh, uh, and so stopped and talked for at least five minutes. Come to realize mid-conversation, the guys from Rhode Island, this is what happens to Rhode Islanders, Jared. No matter where we go in the world, we run into another Rhode Islander. Tiny little, oh, yeah, yeah, tiny little state. And it's like, oh, you can like smell each other. Like, oh, yeah. Not that there's anything wrong with the smell of Rhode Islanders. You get what I'm saying, right? You got the scent. Lamb cakes and chowder. There it is. <laughs> but that's the smell. <laughs> but, Portuguese so, sauce. You know, after talking to the, for a couple of minutes with this guy, I realized I've had the same exact conversation with this same guy but it was midwinter on North Twin in New Hampshire. I'm like, dude, haven't we had this exact same conversation? And you're blah, 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 blah. So, you know, we've seen the whole spectrum. People being almost, I don't want to say rude, because rude means that I take it a certain way, but people that just sort of duck and turn with their mask and don't even say hi to people who will stop and, we're working on all these hiking lists and stuff. So there's a certain socialization about like, oh, have you, have you guys done this one? Are you doing that one? Are you on the 48 list or the 100 list or the this or that? So there's, there's the opportunity for socialization and some people take it. Um, but Paul, we definitely have seen what you're talking about, which is even though you're taking the uh, precaution of the mask, which you would think would allow for at least a short, polite greeting conversation that some people aren't even doing that, which I will say, I think is a little odd in the spectrum of, of these passing hiking encounters. Usually there's minimally, um, it's just a pleasant, hello, have a great day. There's some people that are, you know, I mean, it's like a solitary activity. So you're going to run into people who just aren't interested in talking to you, which, which is fine. Yeah. But yeah, we, that, we that's, that, that's a good point, too. My, so am I the thing that it caused me to think about is that it was just another indicator that one of the ways that we are trying to get people, we mean, I don't know, society, the current information ecosystem, that we're trying to get people to to essentially do the right thing is not through a shared commitment to taking care of one another, but rather through scaring them into compliance, which I think is counterproductive and harmful in the long run. Like it would be much better if we were, you know, uh, open and honest about doing this for everybody's benefit, as opposed to trying to scare people into fearing that they'll get it. Cause I think ultimately that that's, that can be a pretty toxic way to get people to, to commit to doing the right thing. You know, you get some compliance, but I don't know. I mean, I, that's just something I, funny you talk about the solitariness the you know the solitude of of walking it's one of those things you're just kind of thinking through as you walk i mean i wasn't alone but you know you kind of still are you know single file and stuff like that yeah but, well what you what dylan i think what paul is really asking here though is he wanted to just make sure that it wasn't him you know it's like <laughs> is this a thing yeah. or is it yeah. do i just yeah, look ill i think that's what he really he, you know he has a hard time being straightforward with what it is that he wants so i have to you know kind of help bridge that gap I think that's really what he wanted to know. And so apparently it's not him. So that's good. I don't think it's just Paul. I definitely <laughs> it's not just Paul. Just Paul. Yeah, I've seen that same thing. I don't think, and Paul, maybe you can, I mean, obviously living in North Carolina in the South, it's very different than, which I think is part of what we talked about and why the field reports became a thing. 
It's because what we experience is very different than what we see on the news. Most of the news is covering your major cities in the Northeast or out West. But in the South, I mean, even if you see, you know, if you're walking past somebody, they've got a mask on, there's still the polite, hey, how are you? Oh, good, you know. I mean, they're not getting right up in your face or anything, but it's still just this, we're still going to be kind and polite and we'll put on the mask. And so I don't know. I mean, is do you get that same sense, Dylan and Paul, because you're from Rhode Island, you go back up there. Is that, how much of this is cultural? How much is this of this uh, behavior is is regional, if you will. I mean, yeah, go ahead, Dylan. Well, I mean, as a rule, Rhode Islanders uh, <laughs> wouldn't be generally friendly on the street. I didn't think so, <laughs> that, but you never that's know. That's how we roll. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and, and, you know, I, so I work in downtown Providence, uh, this was where the college is. Um, and it's been, um, I mean, there has to be 60% less people in the city. And I would say for, you know, the first three months, it was 85% less people. Um, so, um, you're in, in, in Providence in normal times, um, you wouldn't be greeting somebody on the street just walking around that you did. So it's know. like New York City, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Or is it? I mean, I listened to Crime Town, by the way, so I completely understand Providence. After listening to Crime Town, thanks for Paul's great recommendation. Unbelievable. Yeah. I was like, that's pretty much the podcast by which all other podcasts are measured. As far I, as I'm, I understand. Yeah, that. pretty much. Yeah. Uh, just as a production, I mean, it's the, the music. I mean, everything about that thing is just so well done. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Rhode well, Islanders are not generally going to be, hey, what, how are you? It's more of if you say hi, they're like, what do you want? <laughs> what you are you looking it. at? <laughs> right. What do you need? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know that it's necessarily that it's necessarily cultural. I think it's a divide between um, people who are influenced by fear and people who are influenced by, you know, just common sense. And it just makes good sense. And I think there are way too many many people, in my opinion, that are being influenced by fear to do the right thing. It's still the right thing. Okay. At the end of the day, it's still, they're still doing the right thing. They're, you know, they're avoiding contact, putting on their mask, moving aside and that's fine. Um, but I think that the, you know, it, that, that the, the method by which there, we are attempting to get people to comply, I think ultimately will prove harmful. Um, you know, when we're, if we're using fear to get people to do the right thing, I mean, I don't think that ever works out. I'm no historian, but I don't remember a lot of times when, you know, scaring people into compliance really ever works out so well. Well, not in the United States. Uh, really? I think fear is a pretty powerful tool, Paul. And I, I would say like the cold war, for instance, <laughs> I and then we had this whole wall thing that got somebody elected that that's fear i, I think fear is pretty powerful it, oh it, don't get me wrong it's, it's like it's a big hammer it's yeah. not very uh uh it's not very surgical um but it's very effective y yes you, you're right i i agree with you i am yeah I, I i don't disagree that it's not effective but what i would argue is it's effective in the short term but it has more harmful long-term consequences Right. So, I mean, the hammer is a good analogy. If you're using a hammer to get something, you know, to, to force something in, you can get it in there with the hammer. It'll work, you know, but it'll probably break a bunch of stuff along the way is sort of my point. Well, yes, yeah. something to add to that, <clears throat> Paul, is that 
fear fear has it is a great motivator it gets people to take action but i think the key word here is compliance like are we trying to scare people into compliance that's the thing that at least in the united states compliance isn't really in our dna you know we are just naturally rebellious which is also why we haven't been able to contain this thing cuz we're pretty much like screw you you know or oh god i can't believe paul's not wearing his mask in the airport you know i can't whatever it might be compliance is the problem is that that is one thing i think is wonderful about the united states it's also the thing that can kick us in the butt it happened in the 1918 spanish flu same problem we didn't want to comply you know some places did and they did better than others but compliance is is the key right uh, i i just don't see fear forcing us into compliance. I think it's a failed attempt in the U.S. at least. Other places, it definitely has worked around the world. I mean, you see that still today. But Well, and I, I would say, too, that uh, Rhode Island in particular, um, being the 13th state and we were the holdout, we're, we're not a compliant lot. No, um, not with all those Irish and Italians there. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, it, no. you know, again, it's like Roger Williams left Massachusetts because he wanted religious freedom and he came to Rhode like the, the whole state is, is, is based on the idea of uh, of individual freedoms and resistance to uh, a larger power, uh, if you will. So it's um, how that's now translated through the various, you know, the, the Irish immigration, the Italians. Uh, we have a huge uh, South. I think Rhode Island is one of the largest Southeast Asian populations. Um, you know, so it's, you know, we're, we're pretty far removed from Roger Williams, but just as a sort of state identity, um, you know, the the um, it's the independent man that's on the top of our state house, like, you know, the big bronze statue of a guy, he's that. the independence man. <laughs> and so it's it's definitely a, a bit cultural in our state for, you know, don't tell me what to do. <laughs> and, and yet they seem to have a, you know, a pretty good track record of, you know, um, complying with mitigation measures. Up yeah, there I was going right to ask now. how well are they doing? And it seems because I've heard nothing bad about Rhode Island. It seems like they've. Uh, it's, it's pretty good. I mean, the thing that hurts Rhode Island in any statistical thing is it has such a small population Mm -hmm. so that as a percentage, we can be doing bad, but in real numbers, you're doing pretty amazing. (laughs) I can tell you that what my wife's been battling for about two weeks and, you know, I can hear her zoom calls going on till 10 o'clock at night is a couple of the colleges here. The, the the uh the breakouts in the colleges um providence college here has a very active off-campus housing scene it's it's not fraternities but in a way it, it kind of is it's these three-decker houses that each apartment has seven or eight kids so there's 25 kids in a house and there's a ton of parties it's a it's a good time but uh it's it's, <laughs> it's college <laughs> it's college um but i mean it's just you know, not conducive to uh, not spreading a pandemic. Um, and now I think University of Rhode Island, which is a big Greek scene, um, there's some, I don't want to quote any statistics, but I mean, there's a huge disparity at a place like URI right now between the um, positive tests from the Greeks versus the general college population. I mean, and it's completely predictable, um, but that's what's happening. Um, I would say at our own school, um, we have very, very, very high compliance around the mask wearing, the distancing. Um, I, we're a little bit unique in that our students 
really, really want to be there. Like if you're an art student, this is the hardest school in the world to get into. You've been like the art geek in Alabama and you finally get to come to a place where like you can just do your thing 12 or 14 hours a day and everybody else loves to do what you're doing. Our students really want to make it work. They don't want to go home and not be able to be there. So there's, I think we've only had six or seven positive tests um, in six weeks or something. Well, that seems like the so, incentive right there. I mean, if, wow. if you, I mean, that's, that's incredible, right? Yeah. That That's what gets people to actually comply is a shared desire, a shared outcome. And so I think that's a perfect picture of it, right? Yeah. And you know, it's, it's easier for us than some of the other colleges too, Rick, sorry, is there's not, like these kids don't uh, socialize in large groups, even in the normal times, they work. They, they the, 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 I don't come from like that art background myself, but I mean, these kids like uh, just work in their studios all the time on yeah. the weekends. There's not, there are no RISD ragers, you know, going <laughs> this, you know, they, they're, they're there, uh, to, to, to get their work done. Um, so are so. they, are they all there, um, in, in person? Is there anything virtual happening there? Oh yeah. Yeah. We've got, I think there are 400 roughly that are, are, didn't come back. And I, my guess is most of those are, um, from China and countries that the U S didn't allow to come back. How big is the student body? How big is the student body? Uh, it would be around 2,500. Oh, so that's a pretty big that's a pretty big chunk out of the student body that didn't come back. But so I think we're something like 1,900 or 2,000 present. But even those that are present, like the liberal arts classes, are all remote. Mm. So you might be in your dorm room. You're here. But what they really uh, tried to stress is the access to the studios and the making spaces. So you don't want to, they want to reduce the risk um, in a normal class so that we can stay healthy and you can use the CNC machines and the lathes and the, the kilns and all that stuff. That's, that's what everybody wants access to. Um, so, so when did, far. so, so when did, um, when did Alicia's, so, uh, um, I got a question. If you've, no. <laughs> yeah, now, when did her sentence, when that ended, um, how did you, you know, how did your, you know, how did the pandemic come into full swing? What's been the practice and what's been the experience? Um, yeah. So I would say in, uh, June, I think we did one or two short trips. Um, by the time we were in July, she basically just put the foot down and said, you know, if she's not on call, she's on call. So we won't go away this weekend. Um, but um, all other weekends, uh, we're, we're rolling out of the driveway Friday afternoon, getting up to some trailhead in New Hampshire, Vermont or Maine late at night, sleeping, you know, hiking for eight hours on Saturday and Sunday, driving back Sunday night. Um, and mostly we don't have great service which is, um, you know, cell service and stuff. So it's intentional, accidental that, you know, she's really not available. And uh, I think it has been, 
I, I think it's been a lifesaver. I mean, it's she's, she's right on the edge anyway. I mean, it's it's been brutal. But um, without all of these weekends, um, which have just completely uh, shut all that down, um, I can't even imagine it, to tell you the truth. I, it would have been it would have been completely unacceptable. Hmm. Um, so that's it. So every weekend, we just did a three-day weekend. Um, so New Hampshire and two days in Maine for uh, Columbus Day, Indigenous Peoples Day. <laughs> I saw that for the first time on Google Calendar. It had Columbus Day, and then right above it had Indigenous Peoples Day. I was like, "Oh, look at that! Oh, how lovely!" Yeah. Um, so, 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 let me ask you because I think there's a little bit to this because we talked about it um, uh, last week. What was so? The situation has not, uh, from an administrative policy perspective, the you know the the situation hasn't um, hasn't abated all that much. So what's changed over the last 72 days? What, what are some of the things that um, that really put that demand on on not so much her, but the but the system, the public health system there from your perspective? And, and I'm and I'm asking specifically about the, the the lack of support from elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, there's. Again, I, this is secondhand, right? Although I'm, I'm hearing all these calls at the dining room table, you know, for hours on end. So I, I kind of get what's going on. Um, I mean, first of all, I would think, like, I'm just, I'm just a citizen of America, right? I don't know. I'm not a public health person, but I would think in a pandemic that, like, the planes would be flying out of the CDC and these national experts would be arriving in the 50 states and they would be deploying and there would be these resources and it, whether or not it was in person or, or virtual, there would be this support and there would be some kind of a plan. Well, <laughs> you mean efficiency you, in the U.S. Yeah. government? <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I could tell you that didn't happen. So... And then you'd think, well, all right, the states then, seeing this not happening, they would ramp up their staffing capability, et cetera. Um, and I'm pretty sure that the, the Rhode Island Department of Health didn't add a physician to the team until a, less than a week ago. What? You know, so, I mean, and now there's budget reasons and administrative reasons and liability insurance. I mean, any, you can come up with all of these reasons, but you would think in a pandemic that both the federal and state, you know, that there would be some um, plan. You forgot where um, you are. I mean, no. <laughs> so, so Paul, to your question is like, what has changed such that she can actually go away on the weekend? Like what has changed? One is, you know, she's just drawing the line. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay, I won't be here. Um, you know, you get an out of office on the weekend. Um, though within Rhode Island, they, they've formed these teams and work groups. So it took a while, but, um, in the beginning, um, she was supporting pretty much everything and now has been moved into like the COVID team and well, it's turning into the higher education team because that's what the, where the hot spot is right now. But um, so there has been a little bit of focused uh, energy and, and, and uh, job duties has changed a little over time. How, how long she been, how long she been there at the, at, at the department of health? 
Ooh, five years? Five years. Okay, so so about five and a half years ago, when she was telling us that she was gonna go, she was gonna go work at the Department of Health. I specifically said, I was like, you are gonna be in the parking lot sucking a tailpipe within a month. I was like, you have no idea the bu- how the bureaucracy, I was like, it's insane. I was like, and and to her credit, she's like, no, you know, I'm gonna go in there and, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make a difference. And I you know I get it. And, you know, and I said, that's, that's, that's awesome. I said, but I've been in the system for like 30 years. I said, it's, it's gonna be, it's gonna be rough. How was that prediction close? Oh, it was spot on. I, mean, <laughs> yes. I would. I mean, I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't have lasted. So, but I mean, now, I mean, to a dynamic, I think Paul and you, you know, you are familiar with too, is that I don't want to c- compare anything to combat, but a stressful situation with a group of people that you. Uh, uh, minimally respect but probably also like right so your platoon your whatever right so now you and your people so this is her and her colleagues right now right you don't want to pull the shoot and leave your uh colleagues that you respect and in most cases like you don't want to walk away when something like this is going on even though it's it's you know taking a toll on everybody but you can see the additional toll it's going to take if you walk away. And this is the, this is the catch 22 now. Um, it is, but it's a, it's a super beneficial catch 22 to the system because it's the systems are predicated on these amazing people who don't aren't necessarily dedicated to the policy or the process, but they're dedicated to the people to the left and right combat, you know, just a shitty situation, whatever it is. Um, those systems benefit greatly by that, by that dedication. I, I mean, I, but there's a cost to that too. You know, you extract a human cost when you do that. You know, I mean, it comes out of it comes out of people's hides in one way, shape, or form. You know, that's like I say. God forbid you didn't have the van and you weren't going out to these. You know, I mean, that that I know for a fact that that process has been almost life saving and restorative. Not necessarily for you because you haven't been doing anything except sitting home and borrowing <laughs> CNC machines. But, but certainly for your lovely wife. You know, getting out. And I mean, this this real, it's called self care, Paul. It's yeah, self care. Yeah, yeah. And but Dylan's but doing there great. Is real <laughs> measurable salvation, I think, from what you've what you've created, and and you know, and we could talk about all the you know all the positives to that, but also there's a very much there's very much a um uh you know a, a restorative and, and almost a, a a rescue component to it. Oh, undoubtedly. Um, uh, she recognizes it. I recognize it. I I've. Some of these weekends, I've been pulled between like the van's not done. I really need a week. I need more time. I threw together these cabinets. It all works, but I've got a pile of maple plywood sitting in a wood shop that now has students in it. And you know, I mean, there's there's things I could be doing, but when when Thursday rolls around, uh, I just see the the toll that the week has taken on. Um, on her and i'm like that's it we're rolling out of here tomorrow i don't give a crap about anything else i mean we've got to we've got to get away and um oh i, I can't even imagine it w- without this situation and um it is interesting too in that we're doing this thing that's solitary to a certain degree i mean i think we're we've definitely stayed away you know it's 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 foliage season or it's it's the tail end of foliage season here in new england jared mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
So like the throngs of people have been heading up to the more popular hiking places. And that's exactly where we did not go last weekend. Uh, we went into the depths of Maine and eight miles down a dirt road and um, had a, an encounter with Sasquatch. You were getting to that, weren't you? That was about you know, the there were what? Some guys with guns around. I was happy I had my little orange hat on. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, and I think we counted, you know, ten people we saw all day. And and um, the interesting thing is that even when you have only ten people, that doesn't mean you don't have any, um, uh, you know, restorative interactions that don't have anything to do with COVID in this thing, right? So we, we ran across a group of four younger, not that that's too hard to accomplish, but, you know, maybe in their 20s, they weren't college kids, and they were doing this thing called the Mahusik Traverse. It's like this, it's considered the hardest section of the Appalachian Trail. It's 30 miles in Maine, and, it's, and they were going to do it in one day, oh. which people that are doing the Appalachian Trail don't do it because they get the big packs and everything. So you can only do this as a one-day thing if you're going light. And we ran across them. They were probably, they started at 4 a.m. We were seeing them around noon. So they were eight or nine hours into it. And they were peppy. And we just had, you just have this interaction with somebody. And it's a few minutes. And you're having a little snack. And you're just like, you're not talking about um, positivity rates and masks and testing and fraternities. You know, like you, you get to have some. Uh, interactions that are completely outside of that um, on a common thing, uh, a common interest with a person that you don't know. Um, and and it's, it's generally brief, but it's, you know, uh, sporadic in the day that it sort of just adds up to um, a sort of normalcy um, that's outside of just this grind of, um, that a lot of people, I don't want to say, you know, a lot of people are going through uh, with this whole thing. You know what I love about that? No, you shut up, Paul. I can't get a word in that. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I love about that, Dylan? It made me think about, I was just taking a walk around my neighborhood, did a couple laps around the neighborhood. It was a beautiful morning. And I kept passing like the same lady. And every time we would pass, she was walking her dog. It was just a smile. And, you know, we gave each other distance. And, but you, what it makes you realize is, um, how important those things are that we completely ignored in our regular day-to-day lives before the pandemic, because we were on, you know, I I fit this bill completely. I'm always on a mission. As my wife says, Oh, you're always on a mission. You're always, you've got to get something done. You you're always moving towards something. So I just, you know, I don't stop to appreciate those small interactions, but when you have those taken away from you on a mass scale, you appreciate them and you, they stand out so much more. You're like, Oh, that's right. That's, that's actually really valuable. You know, do you, Dylan, do you, do you think you would have been able to, you you guys would be having the kind of quality time together you're having, had it not been for this? Would you have been using the van as much? Would you spent more time tinkering with it? Um, no, no. I mean, it is, I mean, we, I I would say we are closer than we've ever been. That's, there's a certain, I mean, a lot of things came together, right? So we're empty nesters now. So the kids, I'm not going to my son's a hockey player. So, you know, the hockey games are really far away now. They're in Seattle. <laughs> um, so, you know, we've, you know, you shift your focus from um, your kids and everything and kind of back to each other. So that started to happen a little bit before this, but this has, you know, made that, uh, you know, critical and fruitful. 
Um, it was funny. I, I was talking to another um, one of the technicians I work with, and and he said the same thing. He goes, our family is closer than we've ever been. We're there's a little state park behind our house that we hardly even noticed before, and I'm out there with my son all the time now, um, just hiking around, you know, and we're spending family time in the pool, and you know, so there's there's definitely. Um, something to the best pandemic ever part you know there's something to this nice something (laughs) well did did paul tell you the story about how the best pandemic ever idea came about has he told you this so i'll just set it up and then paul you fill in the details but paul and i were having a just a weekly call right as this thing started to kick off i think we started having these beginning of 2020 like in january or something and it's starting to kick off and uh one of these calls like I called him and I just said, hey, man, how's everything going? And he said, man, this is the best pandemic ever. And I, we were laughing so hard because it was so obnoxious. But then he began to tell me why. It was about this. Um, I, told, I, I told Paul I'd just kick it over to him. Not, I'm going to totally tell the story. So, <clears throat> yeah, just, just to preface here, I was like, I, I was, I'm already past the point of kicking it over. I'm going to take this one all the way, Paul. I got it. So, I, you know, he started to tell me about how he and uh, it was Paul, wasn't it, that you were building the, yeah. the table with? Yeah. 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 And so he's telling me about, oh, yeah, we built this table and, and everything else. He's like, oh, man, that's amazing. I mean, just think, you probably wouldn't have gotten around to that for like six months had the pandemic not happened or two or maybe a year. And Paul said, uh, try never. Like, th- we just came up with this idea because we're spending more time together. So this was never on the radar. But because of this, we decided to build this table. Uh, it, Paul's now turned it into his own side project business. Has yes, young I mean, about my son. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So – yeah, that's how this whole idea of the best pandemic ever started. And then we just kept joking about it. And uh, then we decided to make a podcast of it. But that was the whole idea. So it's very similar to you guys with this. That's what it made me think of is, yeah, you had this. It's drawing you guys closer together. These things wouldn't have happened had the pandemic not been there. And it's really the the heart of, of what this show's about. So, yeah. It is. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's, what it will be interesting when this whole thing ends, and I, I think what's going to be interesting too is it's not going to end. Like it's not going to be like it was on Thursday and then it ended on Friday. Right. It's going to <laughs> peter out in some way. There's going to be a vaccine and blah blah blah. But how much of this do we maintain? You know, it's going to be interesting to see. Um, I feel like for us, I mean, this was our plan to begin with. Was we love to travel. We love to, you know. Uh, hike and, and ski and all this other stuff. This was part of the plan, but um, this was certainly uh, restorative to what, you know, you can be to another person when they're, uh, when they need you to be there, right? That that's kind of been a lesson in this. And I've seen it. I, I've talked to Paul a little bit about this. We won't go too far into it, but there was a a tragedy in my family in the midst of this there was a there was a death so we had to deal with you know a funeral and and, and it was in the sort of worst possible well very bad circumstances around it and you see how people rally around the family and friends and you know you get to a lot of things are revealed it will be interesting to see as we come out of this what the remains of that are can we hold on to uh, the the best of it and and get rid of the worst of it remains yeah, to be that's, seen that's that's one of the reasons why we did this is we're like man we got to keep talking about 
the the positives that are coming out of this. And obviously, at the you know at the risk of being dismissive or accidentally diminishing somebody's suffering, which we never want to do. But you know that's why we really talk a lot about you know the silver lining. So um, yeah, so I guess uh, I'll ask you one last question because I know we're you know unfortunately today we're a little limited on time that we ask everybody, which is you know what's your what's your major silver lining that you'll take away from this experience? Aside from you know the van and being able to poop and shower inside it while it's rolling, which is awesome. <laughs> uh, I mean, the, I mean for me it's just spending time with my wife i mean that's it's pretty slam dunk you know it it has been in a van and on these hiking trails but it uh um i guess it got rid of other options in a way you know this kind of became the thing and the, and then that thing is something that's just primarily the two of us right so we're driving at least three hours if not five hours so you're talking along the way in each direction you're you know chit-chatting while you're hiking and you're making meals together and you know you're just you know put in this situation that um was perfectly timed for us you know you're kind of going into this next phase of empty nest and this other stuff and like the timing of it was brought us back together um you know perfectly um all that said I don't think she would say it's been the best pandemic ever. <laughs> you know, I've got questions for her. <laughs> Is that because of the 72 days or because she's been stuck in a van with you for the last four months? No, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm relatively confident I'm the good part. <laughs> oh, man. Hey, it would be interesting to, to have her on. As, as you've been telling us these stories, Dylan, there's so many questions I'd love to get her perspective on, too. Um, mostly about her experience with the van, but you know, the other stuff about like her opinions on the pandemic and uh, you know, as we, I'll throw it out to her. Unfortunately in her position, she has to be, um, you know, politically sensitive. We could do the monster voice disguise. We could like, you know, where she sounds like a robot or something like that. That's, that's how we'll do it. Oh man. That's good. Yeah. Sorry. I had to end that right there because uh, that was a great silver lining and I totally messed it up. (laughs) <laughs> I, 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 Jared, I was, I was chatting with Paul in our, in our failed attempt last week. And I said, if, if we can get through our, my guest appearance without, um, the deadly silence that you got when you suggested to your guest Lolly that she just needed a Glock or an AK-47. <laughs> <laughs> it was like the, the silence after that was. Uh... <laughs> she, was, she was holding up signs in the video. You know what I mean? She was like holding up a sign that said denial to me, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, we were having fun. She probably wouldn't even oh, pay yeah. attention to me. She was probably throwing up signs over there to Paul in the video. But yeah. Because we, we, yeah, we've joked with that with Lolly. It's like, yeah, you know, she lives in New York City. They, they can't do any of that. And so we just play on. Yeah, yeah that was fun. <laughs> Jared, I know, I know you got somewhere to go. Probably more, probably more um, fisticuffs with the IRS. So uh, now, no. now, let's do your thing. The, the IRS hasn't gotten my stuff yet. It's more of what we're going to send them. <laughs> that was causing a great deal of stress. I hope nobody from the IRS is listening. It's all good. Everything is up to snuff. <laughs> you are good to go. So uh, I suppose I'll take us out then. Uh, first and foremost, Dylan, thanks for being on the show. Seriously, man, this is fun. I'd, I'd, I'd like to have you back on. 
I don't know what Paul thinks, but I genuinely would. So um, I think there's plenty more we could talk about. There's a lot of questions I have for you about Paul since you've known him for a long time. And I think that'd be good to do that on the air. Um, yeah. So for those of you who are listening, still listening, congratulations, because you are the winner of a chicken Parmesan dinner. But, you know, I'm just teasing Paul. Paul's gotten onto me about this. <laughs> okay. Yeah, because he hosed me once before. Oh, there's a few things that are out there, man, that you're going to be getting calls about. Anyway. Uh, if you have not subscribed to the show, please take some time, subscribe to the show, leave us a review, tell us how much you love us, tell us how much you hate us, just give us five stars, that would be wonderful, and uh, pass this on to your friends, to your family, uh, you can send this to your uh, to co-workers for Christmas, yeah, you know, get creative with it, but most importantly, uh, appreciate you listening, stay tuned for our show next week, and uh, yeah, that's it, I gotta come up with a better, uh, a better ending, Paul, you got a better ending here? See ya. Perfect. <laughs>